0: Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast. It's a weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists and cutting edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance and science and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Dr. Jason Boynton, who is a sports scientist and cycling coach. Cyrus Monk, who's a professional cyclist and a cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. The Cycling Performance Club podcast is recorded in the presence of an online audience, so you can join in and ask questions or just participate in the discussion. And this week, we're going to cover how much you can improve your time in an event in one year. We're going to do a case study of a rider at a gravel event and sort of go through the differences and try and model out, potentially, the gains they could make. But Jason, you wanted to start off first.
1: Yeah, I came across a study that was being promoted on twitter and so that is from an exercise scientist at texas christian university and he is currently seeking cyclists who use strava to participate in, a, in some training research they're doing um the flyer says it should take approximately 10 minutes of the cyclist time to complete and um, it just involves downloading their data for the researchers and people who participate can receive a five dollar gift card so if you would like to contact andreas the sports scientist that is conducting this research at his t c u email that is a period k r e u t z e r at t c u dot edu we 'll post the flyer for the research and the Cycling Performance Club Facebook page and give them a retweet on Twitter, which we've already done that. So, um, yeah, please help out these researchers. Uh, We can't have this great stuff to talk about and this great research to chat and use in the conversation here, if we don't have people that were willing to participate and help out the researchers. So, yeah. That's uh, all I have. Just trying to help out some fellow sports scientists who are trying to come up with some um, interesting findings off of Strava data.
0: Cool. Uh, respect. Are we all going to do it? Yep. I guess we are.
1: Yeah, uh, I guess. And then the other thing is, I'm not going to take the five dollar gift card either. So, I mean, if, if it, you, you hope it blows up, and if it blows up, then you don't want to have to chart, have them give everyone a five dollar gift card. So. Uh, I, I won't be taken in. so I'll just do it. So, so kind yeah. of you.
0: But uh, <laughs> the only other sort of housekeeping we have is some feedback uh, that Cyrus has got.
2: Yeah, we got some good feedback this week from a listener, Tom, who said he's really enjoying the podcast and finds the panel-style format nice and interesting. And he had a few good things that he was right with, there with us on and a few things that he was skeptical of from the podcast, which is good. And we sort of encourage people to ask questions and go further if there's something that they're thinking, oh, I'm not so sure about what these guys are saying here or not sure I agree with that. And uh, he is a self-confessed physiology frother, so he um, he's able to, to look into some stuff further and ask us some questions to sort of guide where we're going to go in the next few weeks with the podcast so we really appreciate that feedback from Tom and yeah he he said particularly the period uh, periodization discussion where we talked about how brakes aren't necessarily required for from a physiology point of view he's someone that likes riding his bike so he said now he's going to enjoy the fact that he doesn't have to take long breaks if he wants to keep riding so That's always good to hear from the listeners. And if you would like to give us some feedback, feel free to get in touch with any of us personally or contact us through any of our social media and we'll happily give you a shout out on the next pod.
0: Cool. Thank you, Tom. And now we're just going to roll straight into our topic of discussion for today. And this came from you, Jason. So why don't you set us up about what we're talking about?
1: Yeah, just to give the listeners a heads up, this is actually it's a conversation that we've actually hashed out previously before we were recording the podcast, but now we're kind of coming at it again um, with a little bit more analysis to it. So I'm framing this topic as, um, or the title of it as, "From Citizen Racer to Elite in a Year: Can It Be Done?" And some of the feedback that we got was from Cyrus's dad. <laughs> And he said that we were maybe focusing on pro riders a little bit too much. So last week we talked about the transition from amateur cyclist to pro, and this might be an interesting contrast to that because now we're going to look at well, what does it take for just an average rider, or maybe maybe a slightly below average rider, to get to an elite level, and can it happen in a shorter Period as maybe a year, um, so yeah. Thanks to your dad for that feedback <laughs> and guiding and guiding us to this topic, and um, actually, you know, making us think to rehash this conversation. Originally, when we come, when I brought this topic to the group when we were just doing this on on uh, Clubhouse, what happened was after seven this year, which. Uh, for people who don't know, 7 is a 125-kilometer gravel race, and it has 3,000 meters of climbing, and that's here in Western Australia, just south of Perth, in Nana. So the story goes is that after 7, I had a rider who did 7 uh, approach me about coaching, and their goal was any year to finish in the top 100 riders And just to give some times around that. So the listeners can have an idea what that is. The first place finisher of this race finished it in four hours, 39 minutes and nine seconds this year. The hundredth place finish was at five hours, 47 minutes and 12 seconds. And. There was also a follow-up email from the individual telling me that he wanted to do well at seven. I was like, Hey, you know what? I actually raced this race this year. And then he went and looked at my results and I finished like seventy fourth in five hours and 34 minutes. And then he said, how much would it take to finish where you finish? Right? So he's looking to finish 74th to hundred to hundredth or better if he can. And so, since he creeped me a little bit, I went and I looked up his time and it turned out that he finished in over nine hours. And I think there might have been a 10 hour cutoff. I'm not 100 percent sure, but that's where the results stop is. There's no one that's over 10 hours on the on the results. And just a rudimentary calculation of this is the difference between the 100th place finisher and him is a difference of about three and a half hours. I think maybe some of the listeners are probably like, holy cows, there's no way. The thing is, is like, I have no context for this. And so this is just the thought experiment that we're going to talk about today. We're not really going to talk about this specific athlete. We're going to discuss more about how could it happen that you could take this much time often an, off an event like seven. And this was the question that I posed to you guys in clubhouse a few months ago. And yeah, that's kind of where I'm framing it before I get into a little bit more of the thought experiment. Is it basically how you guys were, were remembering it? Is there anything else that I have to kind of put in here before we move on and more into the thought experiment and laying it out.
2: No, that seems that's I think where we're at at the moment before before we dive into it any further.
1: Okay. Cool. I want to stress very clearly here that the, we're not digging on the athlete or anything like that. This is only about the question that his him approaching me in these times raised. And I think it was an interesting one to explore. And the other thing I want to say is that whatever conclusions that we come to here, it's very possible that we could be wrong. There's a a lot of kind of back of the napkin types of calculations here.
0: It gets really wonky very quickly.
1: Yeah, but instead of us looking at this in terms of can we give like a hard number or hard yes or no, I hope the listeners appreciate that where we're going with this are the things that have to be taken into consideration with this type of question and the other thing is, is you know when we post this on facebook there will be comments open underneath it so if people think that we've missed things or could offer some other solutions or guidance in this question please feel free to put a comment in there so i, I think the first thing we have to start out with is there's a very big lack of context for the individual in this in this uh, scenario so i think to move this conversation forward i'm going to split split it off the bat into factors that we need to consider that could make this improvement in performance more feasible and then some factors that we have to consider that would potentially make this improvement less feasible and each one of these groups of considerations are Broken down into three headings. So I think we're looking at race day factors, we're looking at individual factors, and then potentially maybe some bike factors that are going on. So obviously, what th- the type of things that would make this more feasible, I think, is if there was some bad things happening going on, especially acutely on race day. Just the race day factors, just some of the things that I quickly wrote down to consider is like you know maybe this individual that is three and a half hours off of the hundredth place you know maybe they would have had some mechanical issues maybe they had some long rest stops maybe they had a day with some bad nutrition or dehydration maybe they had some acute illness maybe there was uh, an injury maybe they had a couple crashes any of these factors would artificially increase the time that they took during this race. So that's something to consider. If I'm just looking at this person and they're nine and a half hours and they have to improve their time by three and a half hours and they just crashed less or weren't sick, we could lose that's a the, massive the amount of time. That's the low-hanging
0: fruit list. Yes, that's yes. the low-hanging fruit list. Yes. Yeah, yep. the easy stuff to tick off and, and correct.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. So I don't know if you guys had any other thoughts about the race day factors. Those are just the things that were coming out of my head when I wrote this down. Um, but the other, well, the other thing to consider is the individual. If this person has low fitness at the time, if there's a low, tr- there was a low training volume, if they're overweight these things could all be amended fairly quickly if they're highly motivated. So if they have all these things that are negatively affecting their fitness and their ability to perform just physiologically, a lot of these things could be alleviated in a short amount of time. Would you guys agree with that? Yep. Yeah. We'll get into the details more with that later, I think. Um, the other thing that I to consider, I think, is bike factors. You know, this, you, they could have ridden it on a very heavy bike or and or a very cheap, inexpensive bike. It could have had, um, you know, we already said mechanical issues, but they could have had bad bearings or bad fit. I think Cyrus brought up earlier. Poor gearing, because this is a very, there's a lot of climbing in this race. If they would have had to been grinding on, on a bike that was improperly geared for them, that could have definitely set them back. So... Any of these things to consider without context is going to potentially kind of help the situation because the time has been skewed slow. Then there's the the factors we have to consider where this would be less feasible. And they are pretty much the opposite of what would make it more feasible. So, you know, if this person was on the bike the whole time, didn't crash, was descending great, had no mechanical issues, barely had any stops, did their nutrition perfectly and still finish at nine plus hours, there's not a lot of wiggle room. there. There's not a lot to improve there. And similarly, if this person is lean and has been training, you know, 10 to 20 hours a week or something like that, again, not a lot of wiggle room there. If they're still training at that and they don't have a lot of motivation to train more than that, then... That's going to be a problem. And in terms of bikes, if they're on a $7,000 gravel bike that's carbon fiber and has all the bells and whistles on it, that's, that's not something we're going to be able to improve on either. And so if they have all of these things that I've mentioned and they're still at nine plus hours, the improvement of three and a half hours is going to be really unlikely I think. Would what do you guys think? Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, you're hoping that they're they're not close to their capabilities whatsoever. Otherwise, obviously that percentage difference in time is going to be a pretty hard task to to achieve.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, to kind of unpack this thought experiment a little bit more and go a little bit more beyond what we looked at a few months ago, we actually started pulling out rider data, and I think I'll hand it off to Damien to kind of talk us through that and like what you've been doing, what because you are Mr. Strava analysis guy here. So
2: Strava creep,
1: Yeah, Strava creep. I, I did, that's that's what
0: we've been Strava using. Strava stalker. Yeah. Is my yeah. official title. Yeah, Strava yeah. But, uh,
1: you're the yeah, you're the man when it comes to this, Damien. So uh take us through the, who who you decided to look at. And, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'll go through how I thought about this as soon as we started framing it and thinking about, okay, what do we have to do? Where do we have to look to make these gains? The interesting thing here, I think is that the last time we had this discussion, we kind of ended there where we were, um, just now we didn't go into this, these other things. And, I think the outcome is interesting. I, I, I'm not going to give anything away, but I think the outcome is interesting. But how did I approach it? So We did
1: add one uh, one thing that wasn't in here, and that was like if we had a billionaire with unlimited time. But we'll get to yeah, that we later. we went off
0: into a whole other place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for me, I wanted to start with looking at the performance requirements that it takes uh, to hit a specific goal. And if we're mm-hmm. aiming for that time that is around five hours, 50, five and a half hours, somewhere in there, uh, then, then that's what we're defining as the goal. And then we kind of work from that point on. And for me, this is modeling the basic requirements of how we can achieve that goal. So the overall duration that you need to ride out, the power duration of key sections that you need to ride, and then measure that against the athlete's current performance traits, their power profile, their gravel riding skills, their bunch riding skills anything that contributes to their performance. Then we calculate the shifts that need to be made from the athlete's current performance traits to meet the requirements for the for, to achieve the goal. And from that, the next step there is then you're going to plan and train with the intent in making shifts to these key traits. So what I started with was actually getting into the race itself. So I did an analysis of performance requirements for seven, And I think the interesting thing here is we have Jason that actually did the event so we can compare notes pretty much or compare experience to my notes to get a pretty good understanding here. But by the numbers, the distance is 125 kilometers. Elevation gained over that, it varies, but it's, you know, anywhere from 2,800 to 3,000 meters, depending on what your GPS says. Start time, 7 a.m. in the morning. Average altitude is 185 meters. The weather from the last event was between 13 and 18 degrees Celsius. And then we start getting into the course itself and the road surfaces, which I think plays a big part of this, especially when it comes to pacing, planning, and certain skills that you need. And the route itself, it says that it has only 2.6 kilometers of single track, that all roads used are unpaved and well-formed with a mix of dirt, gravel, hard pack, clay, quartz grit and mica mm-hmm. and they kind of wind through pine plantation state and forest farms yep. They describe this thing as parallel single track what does that mean uh, that's probably just you know, like a,
2: a four-wheel drive track with the grass in the middle still so like you've got two different single tracks next to each other essentially but it's just what four-wheel drives and off-road vehicles would drive along
1: yeah i would call it jeep track i don't know what you what the aussies would call yeah, it
2: four-wheel drive track
0: that yeah. sounds about the same or, or yeah.
1: <laughs> Actually, I think if you were uh I think the Americans call it fire roads, yeah, fire roads too, yep. so yep, okay, so that's a pretty good description of it. You've hit the mark there,
0: all right, good, well, that's that's the description from the the event creators, so um, then other factors that kind of come into it here, there's nine checkpoints. Uh, all checkpoints have marshals, checkpoints, there's like five checkpoints that are also hydration stations, which comes into planning, but good to know now. Mm-hmm. Uh, bike selection is something that they mention as well. And we we will, I guess we'll talk about this a little later. We've, we've sort of flagged it. It is an unusual course by all standards, mm-hmm. so people are riding it on mountain bikes, gravel bikes, and other kind of bikes that can handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they specifically say that you cannot ride with aero bars, tri bars or road bikes. Yeah. So bike selection seems like a big thing. Yeah.
1: Although I did see a guy that was doing it on a road bike and I want to say, I think he might've just been brought there by a team just to do the lead out on the road section (laughs) from the start into the gravel. Cause it was, Oh man, it was going like full bore, but that race starts. I think there's basically mm, about 30 minutes where it's just full on. It's, really really hard and i forgot that from the first time that i did it how hard that opening section is you know i was probably at a heart rate where i would be doing my vo2 max intervals for a good 20 30 minutes it's very hard so that's how that that, race starts also
0: the difference yeah the difference between pacing and riding to like racing to win or just riding to finish Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. that would be something that you would want to discuss and 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 the trend of starting fast and then slowly fading seems to be the main thing here, even amongst the top 10 that I looked at. Mm -hmm. But the next thing I looked at on the course was the climbs because this is the key feature. They're not crazy long, sort of between 1.2 kilometres and 4.5 kilometres with gradients that go up to 20%, which is a thing in itself that would impact... um, your ability to just repeatedly get over these smaller climbs for nine hours or five hours, whatever your finish time is. But I counted kind of a main chunk of 13 climbs. Mm-hmm. And I then I wanted to get an idea of what you need to cl- climb, what watts per kilogram you need to climb those at. So I hunted down two riders on Strava, and this is where Strava came into it. And I found one that finished – with a time of five and a half hours. And then I found one that finished with a time of nine hours. Uh, and it's pretty rare to find someone down in nine hours that has a power meter. So I yeah. got very lucky here. And then the cool thing also, not only the entire course had a segment, but every single climb had their own individual segment as well. Yeah. So I went through, say, the first rider with five and a half hours And I looked at the time it took them to do it, their average speed, and then their watts per kilogram. And I went through and did that for every climb so I could get an idea of what their performance was made up of. Because when it comes down to it, they did it in 5 hours, 26 minutes, 47 seconds. Four minutes of that was non-riding time, so they didn't stop much at all. They had an average of 3 watts per kilogram, which I took a guess of their FTP at uh, 340 watts at 80 kilograms. So it's around 70% of FTP. And then I broke that down even further. So by... That sounds about right,
1: actually, because I was talking with my mate, Chris Glasby, and he finished ahead of me, but I was riding with him for quite a bit of it and i think he said he's 75 to 76 kilograms and his ftp was about 320 watts that day so that sounds yeah potentially in in the ballpark there for the ftp of that rider i think
0: okay okay that's good that's good and this is one of those wonky things where if you have to start taking guesses Mm -hmm. starts moving you away yeah you just want it you want reality yeah so I, i went through uh Each of these climbs, and I added up how much climbing there is, of course, there probably be more. These are the major ones. But to make it sort of a nice round number, I got to an hour and a half of climbing that you have to do, and then there's four hours outside of that. So so then if you want to have a three watts per kilogram average, then what do you do on the climbs? What do you do everywhere else? And I calculated it out to be 3.6 watts per kilogram uh, that this rider, rider one was doing 85% of their FTP for that one and a half hours, which is, uh, possible manageable. Anytime outside of that, their average was around 2.8 watts per kilogram, uh, which works out sort of under 70% of FTP. And so that was the, that's the goal. That was the goal that, um, I was, that we're putting down. It's kind of this three watts per kilogram on average, over five and a half hours uh, with these these climbing kind of percentages and things, which I think is really helpful when it comes to uh, trying to plan and seeing what's possible, and and I'll get into that in a moment. But going through Rider 2, FTP, 220 watts, weight, 79 kilograms, their race finish time was 8 hours, 58 minutes and 46 seconds, their riding time was eight hours and five minutes, so they had fifty-three minutes where they were doing uh, either breaking, sleeping, who knows what you do for that long. Just for I mean, the sake yeah. of it, Damien,
2: how are you? How are you guessing their FTP? What are you using there when you when you're guessing that his FTP is at two twenty, or does does it show on Strava there? So that was actually okay, listed. Yeah,
0: yeah, that was listed on yeah. Strava. The other one had the weight, but it didn't have the FTP. Uh, so I just looked at his best twenty minute power. Uh, across this event and then kind of just rounded up by a bunch. But, uh, yeah, all all of this stuff is just available, readily available. Um, And so the eight hours, the rider two that did eight hours, his average watts per kilogram was 1.5 watts per kilogram, which works out at 50% of his FTP, and he was uh, doing 2.4 watts per kilogram uh, when he was climbing. So... We had a pretty good start there as far as making a comparison between where our hypothetical rider is and where they want to be. And it's now it's sort of how do we get there? How do we bridge that gap? What is that gap? And uh, I looked at two things when I started doing this. I didn't factor in all these other things. I didn't factor in the bike and all these other low-hanging fruits. So I just used the numbers we have, which means the end number we have uh, – the number we have at the end of this is probably high and we can reduce that a little bit. We can get a bit wonky and take some estimates of how much we think we could reduce it by. But So if we have the goal of five and a half hours at three watts per kilogram, we want to be doing the climbing at 3.6 watts per kilogram and do everything else at 2.8 watts per kilogram. So I modeled weight. I started with weight here. And if we have a reduction of nine kilograms, the rider two that I picked is 79 kilograms. So nine kilograms is very possible. It's 18 mm-hmm. weeks uh, of work with a reduction of 500 grams a week, and that's that's very plausible here. You could do that not even in a build period where it's where you want to maintain power through through and and fuel properly to get work done in, under heavy load. And we can reduce the time by doing this, not changing anything else, by 40 minutes. So we get it down to eight hours wow. 21 minutes. Uh, okay. by reducing 9 kilograms. Uh, and so then I took that that kilograms, 70 kilograms, and then I ran it against some increases in FTP. So the first example, if we take the FTP of 250 watts at 70 kilograms, to maintain 3.6 watts per kilogram, you need 100% of FTP.
2: That's tough there for uh...
0: For an hour and a half. (laughs) And you need 80% for the rest of the time. Yeah. So it it doesn't work. Mm, No, no. Then I went up even higher. So I went to an FTP of 300. And that's when things start looking reasonable from this, following this line of thinking. And you can get to 80% of FTP for... An hour forty. I'll explain why in a second. But you get for an hour forty, and then sixty five percent of FTP for the remainder of time, which I have at four ten.
2: That's that sounds because reasonable. I
0: calculated. It does it then. It starts to sound reasonable, at least in what's possible, the realm of what's possible, um, all things considered. And I was modeling, and I modeled this power. I got to this figure because three watts per kilogram with an FTP of 300, weight of 70 kilograms, you have to average 210 watts uh, for the race. And I modeled this and it reduced the time by two and a half hours to five hours and 50 minutes. So it's not the five hours and 30 minutes, but it's the five hours, 50 minutes. And that's why I increased the time spent on climbs to 140 and everything else to 410, because it's reasonable to to, to expect that a person with these numbers could do that performance. Um, I, well,
1: that that puts us in the ballpark because we were looking for a 100th place and 100th place came in at 547. And
0: that's what I didn't know before you said that. And I thought that that's interesting because that's right on that threshold. And anywhere from, mm-hmm. yeah, that 50 to 530 is a bonus, really. But I, mm-hmm. I did go ahead and model um, five and a half hours and what the average power would have to be at 70 kilograms. And that's 230 watts. And that uh, that two hundred and thirty watts is like one hundred and ten watts you need extra on your FTP three hundred and thirty watts. Uh, so that's that's sort of that's stretching it too far. So if we just take it back, and we think about, we need an eighty percent to get to that three hundred FTP. You need to drop nine kilograms, and you need to add eighty watts, which is a thirty six percent increase in FTP in twelve months. Wow. Is yeah. that possible?
1: And that's, yeah, mm. that's that's the million-dollar question. And that's I mean, pretty much,
0: yeah, the crux of it for me. That's what it came down to, um, because then this, then you start making your training decisions. Then you start thinking about what other fitness things you need. It's FTP isn't the be-all and end-all here, of course. It will everything will in in some way that will benefit the performance will rise if FTP goes up. But it's not the only thing you need to train here uh, when it comes to fitness. But it's probably the main marker we've discussed. I just wanted to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and to give you a quick reminder about who we are and where you can find us. The show is a collaborative project between sports scientist and cycling coach Dr. Jason Boynton professional cyclist and cycling coach cyrus monk and myself damien Roos, professional cycling coach and author of the cycling science digest if you want to get in touch with any of us or find out more about what we do check out the show notes of this episode for links to each of our websites or social media accounts also a reminder that you could be part of the show too we host the show live on clubhouse every week just search clubhouse for the cycling performance club and you'll see our scheduled room. And with that, let's get back into it.
2: Yeah, I think the with the 36% there, the first thing you have to look at is just where they're starting from and their training status before. Because, yeah, as we sort of went over when we discussed this previously, I'm I'm not going to be able to chuck 36% onto my FTP. If I if I was able to do that, I'd be racing a, mm-hmm. a race around France at the moment. But um, the yeah the if I, and Jason, I don't think you'd be able to chuck thirty six percent onto your FGP either. Whereas you're hoping this person is so far mm-hmm. off their physiological ceiling, and at such a low training status to begin with that you have room to improve that much.
1: Mm-hmm. So. I think moving forward and I might be throwing on you guys a little bit of a curveball, but this is kind of how we approached it last time we We could look at this scenario in terms of when we come to the these questions of can you increase the power and that power is gonna come down to a question of training load really, and questions of training load comes down to time and recovery and some other factors so I think what we'll do to make this kind of an interesting thought experiment is let's have the realistic scenario of the guy with a day job. And then we'll go back to our billionaire. We have a billionaire who's independently wealthy. He he's he time is no thing. I'm gonna I'm all in. Next uh, ride months. my bike I'm all in. Yep. I he he's gonna race his bike and ride his bike like a pro. He's super motivated because he's you know He's a billionaire, so he's super type A. And then money is no object, so he can train wherever he wants and he can ride whatever bikes he wants. So let's attack it like that. And I think so the first question is, is how is he going to get this power? How are we going to train him? And when I was thinking about how to go about this, I was looking for something numerical to start with. And that, met, that brought me to the measure of chronic training load right away, but before we get any deeper, I think I'll have to take a moment to talk about and define chronic training load or as it is often referred to CTL, uh, because I think it will be really important to have a good grasp of this measure before we move this conversation forward. So CTL is more or less a calculated measure of fitness. I like to look at it as the higher your CTL is, the more likely you will see high power numbers during your workouts and races. Uh, CTL is also a measure on the Training Peaks platform and it is displayed in their performance management chart. So that's where you can find it. And the question is, well, how, how is this calculated? The value for CTL that you have on a particular day is calculated as an exponentially weighted rolling average of the training load you have acquired from your individual workouts over the past 42 days. Um, and so the question follows there is how is training load calculated for individual individual workouts? And in the training peak system, the measure of training load is called the training stress score. And this value is calculated based on the duration and intensity of your ride and it is relevant to your threshold uh value or your ftp that might be a lot to take on but just so the listeners can relate ctl to something that is familiar to them from what damien and i have seen and i think other coaches have seen usually what you'll athletes will get around 50 tss per hour averaged over a week so If you ride approximately 14 hours in a week, you can expect to see a TSS of accumulated over the week of 700. And if you were to ride six weeks, uh, at 700 TSS or 42 days, you'd expect to see at the end of that, a CTL of around a hundred and. 100 CTL, from my experience, is a pretty good CTL for someone who has a day job. Um, and I think it's also reasonable f- for someone to shoot for uh, in that scenario. But getting back to the athlete in our thought experiment here and how we're going to get him enough power to reach his, his goal in this race, I was thinking, how much... Chronic training load or CTL, would I have to increase in this person's training to get this amount of power? And could, is that feasible? And I don't have a great, I don't have a great answer for that. I have an idea of what type of CTL I would try to have them climb to if they were this billionaire. I think the number that we just kind of throughout there was 150, but we might be able to get it higher than 150. So, and it's almost like one of these things where it's like, okay, you have all this time, all this money, and we can train you. It's just a matter of how high can you get the training load and, and have them be able to recover and, and everything they need to do to, to maintain that high training load. And then kind of see what, what kind of power comes out of that situation. Yeah, now, uh, it is
0: this thing of we can control the prescription of the work needed to get to a certain level of, of fatigue or whatever. We, we can't predict what's going to happen because of that. We, we, yeah. we sort of threw the, have thrown this around a lot. Can we actually get to this point where we could give someone a number of what they may reach... If they put in this amount of work and right now, no, right now. There's I no think guarantees. the best,
1: yeah, the best thing I came up with and I would have to get someone with better math than me to do this was the rectangular hyperbolic curve. And I think we might be able to model some type of relationship between power output and CTL using a curve that is similar to this. So you would, you know, you'd have your CTL on one axis and then it would predict your power on the other axis. And basically, if I was going to describe a rectangular hyperbolic curve is it has a very fast increase and then it starts to taper off and then it eventually flattens out. And what that is is basically a mathematical description, at least to me, of the principle of diminishing returns. And that's also something that's really important to, to talk about in this discussion too, and maybe people don't realize it, is that there, the relationship between the training that you do and the increase in Watts is not going to be linear. You have to do more and more work in order to get smaller and smaller gains. And that is why this prediction is going to be really difficult. If it was just a linear thing, then we would just be able to pull out some of our athletes' data, right? And just say, this is how much they change from this CTL to this CTL. It's probably going to be similar in this person, right? So if we saw, if we, you know, Cyrus, we talked about your power a little bit. You said the lowest uh, CTL that you've ever seen was 80 80 yeah. 80 and let's say and so your highest would be 130 let's say we have 20 minute uh, high, test uh,
2: highest would be at the first one, in the big over 150 but i i think at that yeah, particular yeah, yeah. point the i probably wasn't gonna do a great ftp test because that was at the end of a massive training camp and i was a bit a bit overdone mm-hmm. but um ah, uh, yeah yeah, basically, yeah. like what we're getting at is just like trying to work out the number of the CTO number at which that line flattens out to the point where it's not valuable adding on extra. And at the moment, we're sort of just choosing yeah. one hundred and fifty as as the guide for that. In that, I think basically because from analysis, you can see the majority of professionals are sitting between one hundred and thirty and one hundred and fifty, and and that's and the majority of athletes I would be training, I'm trying to keep around that mark. But because it's rare to see the noticeable gains or valuable gains above that 150 CTL, when whether you're actually going to notice any increase in FTP once you're sort of going over around that range. And it is tough because there's not any papers with concrete evidence showing this, but this is sort of a, a bit of a one where it is pretty wonky and we're, we're taking a guess here.
1: Yeah. And I think I'd point probably point out just to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here that this isn't hard evidence to say that you're not going to get any returns after you get over 150. This is just kind of shooting off the hip. This number it has a lot of variability based on what the data that goes into it is and what the individuals set the models FTP at. And it's not necessarily valid. So there's still a lot of variability in the number. So we're just kind of giving this roundabout area. And, but the other thing is, is we're not going to see probably not going to see numbers over 200
2: yeah would you agree I, I've, I've never I mean, seen that I mean, above. i think the yeah, highest i've ever yeah, seen yeah. is 170 unless
1: your ftp's yeah, are on the highest
2: right? the highest with an yeah, accurate unless, ftp yeah. i've ever seen is 170
1: yeah so we have to be kind of realistic and and this is the other thing is and i was bringing this up to an athlete where i was like yeah we're gonna target this ctl but these people that were getting this 100 50 ctl number from are super big outliers so even if we have our billionaire here that has all the time that he needs to train he has a dietitian uh working with him and a chef and you know a masseuse and everything that he would ever need he might have just not had the right parents to get him up to yeah. that number
2: it's a bit like right. what we so, talked about last week. Yeah, you you, you need to choose. Yeah, exactly. I was Definitely
1: making a reference to to last week. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess the important to kind of take home there is that. Sorry to disappoint you, listeners, but this is a really hard question t- to to ask. And I think, Damien, did you bring it up that I think you said Trainer Road might be trying to predict where people's power outcomes are going or
0: this is my understanding of their adaptive training system that they're trying Mm -hmm. to put together they're trying to use their data set and then use that to make predictions about where you would end up based on certain amounts of training uh but i don't want to i don't want to really get into the details of that
1: yeah just just mentioning it just in case someone was like hey you guys this people these people already kind of doing this like yeah
0: we're aware this is the (laughs) current uh what would the term be like the 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 goose that lays the golden egg at this point if you can tell somebody if they do this set amount of work and they'll get this result that that's like the thing that everybody's trying to do at the moment and yeah uh, even coaches or people that are knowledgeable trying to do this on an individual basis you would still have a lot of trouble so probably the overall point here is we're trying to then maximize what somebody has the time they have available um, where they're starting from there's lots of things that we're trying uh, to control there's things that we can't control but we try and control the things we can and that's the input that's the amount of training we do and then the best thing you can do from that point is follow the trends you can test you can see what's happening Based on the amount of volume that you are giving somebody, how responsive are they to that, uh, and then kind of take it from there. But specifically, whether we could, whether you could reach a thirty-six percent increase in your FTP in twelve months, uh, I, it, again, it just comes back to what Cyrus says. I think it's just your training age. Yep. If you are in the first three to four, or oh, sorry, one to three to four years, then you'll have a much better chance of adding that much on there, and then it just you know, following that curve, it just gets harder and harder.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to kind of point out, you know, I think we were throwing these numbers around before. So if you had, if you had an athlete that was starting maybe at a CTL of, of 50 and they you were able to bump them up to a hundred and then from a hundred, you would be able to bump them up to 150. Then that change in performance from 50 to a hundred along this idea of diminishing returns is going to be greater from 50 to 100 than it probably is from 100 to 150. Uh, Yeah.
2: But another factor for that is that's going to add motivation for this athlete that you're working with too. If they're... Because if they're... We're assuming now, if they're in that that nine-hour category, that they're going to be starting with a pretty low training load. So they're going to see those... Once you're increasing that, they're going to see those gains really quickly and that's going to be a big source of motivation for them as well. And that's often, yeah, really enjoyable for new athletes beginning is seeing those numbers all increasing and that's going to work in your favour as well, working with a a new athlete towards that goal.
0: Oh, yeah. Dropping Mm weight and adding adding watts. Oof. Mm -hmm.
2: Yep. Uh, So
1: I think we've covered the the physiological part of it, the performance, training, anthropometric side of it. The, the only other part with loss, training that right. I'd want
0: to cover is just what are some yeah. of the other areas that you would just need you need to have to do well at this race. Uh, you know, uh, is there a, is, you know, is it form in a power? Is it neuromuscular power? You, you know, what is, what in your opinion, Jason, from uh, doing this race? What are these sort of secondary things that you need to have?
1: uh well that's a good that's a good point so if i was going to be training an athlete for this coming into it we'd be doing some very long rides you know i was doing some eight hour rides before coming into it uh, just to be able to ride comfortably for five hours even though i wasn't really comfortable considering my back but uh yeah they would definitely be doing some very long rides uh, coming into this i wouldn't because remember ctl is a number at the target, but it's also important what you're doing to get there. So kind of that comes down to training intensity distributions, you know, what kind of intervals you're doing, how long your long rides are. You can't just ride 150, you know, you could get to 150 CTL by riding 150 TSS every day, but and cyrus has done this (laughs) 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 just 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 the mad scientist you know just over here just i'm just gonna see what happens if i ride the same tss every day (laughs) how'd that go for you cyrus well well,
2: just so uh because i don't think i mentioned this in the podcast in during lockdown last year there was no events at all on the horizon so i went right i'm gonna Ride 100 kilometers in the same. In I was in Ireland at the time, and we were restricted to a two-kilometer radius. So I had a pretty, f- pretty flat loop <laughs> that I was riding around every day, and it was the same three-hour, twenty-minute ride. At probably, I think it was like, uh, yeah, 200 watt average, but it ended up being around 120 TSS each day, and that was uh yeah for 45 days in a row so that's the seven week period there and my my CTL sure enough was exactly 120 but it was I'd say my my threshold power at that point after that amount of training would have been a hell of a lot lower than my my threshold power last time I was at 120 ctL so there there's your case study of how not to improve FTP yep. with increase ctl
1: um yeah cyrus monk <laughs> ladies and gentlemen absolute absolute <laughs> legend <laughs> um so actually you can take this conversation to Siler's hierarchy because if you're ctl is correlated really really highly with the volume of training you do so volume of training is going to be important then it kind of comes down to obviously you know, how you segment the volume of training, you know, you're going to have some really long days, um, you know, some shorter days, that type of thing. And then you can start looking at the other tiers that are higher than that in Siler's hierarchy. And the next tier after that would be high intensity interval training. And, you know, a good reference for that Damien would be the, um, Lawson. Yeah, the Larson and Bouchette two-part reviews that I sent you there. And so you're going to want to do intervals that are going to be more focusing around aerobic capabilities. I don't think you really need much for neuromuscular stuff. I would be, and then you, that would get into how often you would be doing high intensity intervals. That also goes into, um, and then how often you do the high intensity interval training that gets into the next tier after And that is training intensity distribution. So I, it really gets into following like each one of those, uh, segments of the hierarchy, you would kind of consider it and then bring it back to this, this race. Right. Um, and yeah, I don't want to get too dumb. I think sometimes I think if you're, and we've had this conversation too, and, I don't, and this would be like almost a, a theme for an, another podcast of these, these two kind of approaches to training endurance athletes, particular cyclists, right? You, on one side, one school of thought is to train the physiology, train it, train the athletes. So their physiology improves, or uh, sorry, train the athletes so that their threshold improves and train the athletes so their VO two max improves, train the athletes. So their, neuromuscular ability improves. And then the other school of thought is this athlete has this course that they're aiming for, which is their a race. It has a a circuit that they have to do eight times. And there is a two minute climb on that circuit that breaks the field. It breaks the field on the eighth time. So I'm going to make interval training around two minute efforts. Right. So this is kind of training more around the event that they're doing. And this probably be, you know, similar to like, maybe like pursuit on the track might be pretty heavy with this, but yeah, so you have these two schools of thoughts and then you could also have what you could be. There's probably very, a very rare scenarios where people are doing only one or only the other. I think coaches are probably mixing. Um, and so, But me, for me, I sit more on the train, the physiology side of things. And for me, there's such a big relationship, there's enough of a relationship for me between a high threshold and the ability to repeat high five minute numbers repeatedly, or however long these climbs are. There's enough correlation between those two numbers that for me, it's almost splitting hairs a little bit. So I would just be focusing on the big picture of how big can I get this person's threshold?
0: All right. Now let's leave that part there. I think for the next part, let's just do rapid fire. Let's get a bit wonky, throw out some percentages, Mm -hmm. uh, that we can, uh, change here. Mm -hmm. So if I just, I'm going to fire these away and then we'll hit some numbers. So, Let's talk about skill development, how much better they can get in a year and how much time that would reduce. So, Cyrus, I'm going to go to you. Bunch riding skills, drafting, pacing, all of these things. Yeah. uh, Can you give me a percentage of time reduction? Yeah,
2: I think the bunch riding skills is probably not going to be that much in this kind of race because uh, Jason will be able to tell you um, that – the, a lot of the time you're out of a bunch after that first half hour period where everyone's sort of together bundled in, bundled yeah. in. Uh, drafting if you've got someone to <laughs> if you've got someone to pace you, which goes into pacing, yeah. then that um that's going to be a big yeah. difference. If you are riding with someone, like if this was my athlete and he was if he wasn't paying me unless so he I could get him to get reach his goal, I'd be riding it with him and pace, pacing him through it and drafting him along. That's another cheat way to um, make up some time but yeah the the pacing I think would be the biggest one for this and I'm gonna say like between 10 and 20 percent here because if you look at <sighs> if you look at um someone in that nine hour bracket and the differences in what per kilo between their start and their finish that's going to be some pretty crazy drop-off in the majority of those people and just going out at a completely unsustainable
0: all right you got it you got a number jason
2: no no
0: <laughs> all right i'll, I'll take no, the no. 10 I, I picked
1: i picked physi- i picked physiology so i wouldn't have to deal with math
0: <laughs> this isn't even math i don't think uh yeah, okay yeah. better bike aero gains rolling hey, resistance hey, no
1: no you're, you're going you're going too fast here uh, you got to ask what do you think about the skills that you need jason you did the race <laughs> You forgot. (laughs) Um, Descending is really important on this race. Because there's some really fast, sketchy descents. And you can pick up a lot of time if you know how to descend on this race. If you're one of those people with a massive set of gamete producers.
0: That would also be bike selection as well. Yeah. If you're willing to take the hit. Because it does say 65% of the people rode on a mountain bike. Were they you did it on a gravel bike, did you
1: yeah, I did it on a trek nine twenty
0: so they were they bombing past you on the downhills the mountain bikers uh i was
1: i was I was literally in no man's land because i was i was I was riding with two women haha ha, puns <laughs> and uh but they were both on cross bikes, and I felt like I was able to Descend better than them because the 920 has 2.2s on it, and I don't know what they were running, maybe 40s or something like that. So yes, uh, tire width is something to be considered when dis- when thinking about descending on this race. But then you get into how much heavy that bu- how heavy that bike is compared to you know, uh, cross bikes that are carbon fiber. But the descending is definitely a pretty big thing there. And you can start getting yo-yoed pretty hard if you're not a good descender and you're in a pack, cause you'll just get, you know, you'll be riding the brakes on the way down. And even if you're pretty fit, you know, you have to get ride up to the group and you might be climbing with them, but then you're having to close that gap every single time. So the descending is surprisingly important. Especially if you do get with a group, cause that group is gonna, is gonna pace you, uh, nicely. So yeah, that, that's my, but how much that imp- would improve the, the rider. Phew, um, I'm still gonna be, uh, um, it's something that you're gonna want to work on. Cause you're definitely gonna want to have them go out and do gravel rides before they do this race, but at the same time, it's all it's, as we've discussed, it's a massively about how much power you can hold over a long period of time. Yep. And one of the other things that I didn't mention is, is just briefly just the uh, training their gut to be able to shove a bunch of, bunch of sugar in it over the, the time that they're out there. That was definitely a limiter for me. Um, I, looking back, if I was going to adjust how I approach this race on my longer gravel rides, I would, you know, be going out with, food and just trying to shove down as much as I could, um, to, to train my gut. Um, and that's actually been sh- demonstrated with some Louise Burke papers with, uh, race walkers. You guys, maybe Cyrus, you've heard of that or not? I don't know. Damien, maybe too. but, um, yeah, that's definitely something to consider coming into this race. It's just so long and you have to eat so much that it's actually going to probably benefit you to train your ability to eat. And, one of my athletes, he's he's really good about eating. He consumed an ins- something like ten gels in the last two hours. It was it's insane how much he can digest. He is his his his, his gut is a ama- Is, is amazing, he over innocent. the ninety grams an hour? Yeah.
2: You should test uh, him. See if he's. That's a good question. See if he's a superhuman. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. We'll see about that. Anyways, um, yeah, you continue on with this <laughs> rapid fire that maybe isn't as firing as rapid as you as you want it to.
0: <laughs> well, we just ticked over an hour mark. So yeah, uh, if we just moving we kinda, it here, if we kind of yeah. yeah move through this quickly and try and wrap it up, then we can let Cyrus off yeah, the hook. I got a train. Uh, yep. and, got yeah, and got a train means
2: crash. I board a train. Uh, I'm not training today; it's a rest day. <laughs>
0: But you're gonna catch a train yeah, to train. That's, that's the so. idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Better bike. We kind of touched on that. How much would a better bike? Uh, but better. That's that's the word here. The, you know, are you focusing? Are you better at the downhills? So you you focus on a mountain bike. Are you better at the uphills? I think I've seen a GCN video like this. Um, a cyclocross bike or a gravel bike versus a mountain bike. Which one's faster? So probably doubling down on your strengths would be the main key here. Um you
1: know I I would thought the the 920 I had with the big tires was probably a pretty good way to go and on the descents it's pretty good um except for the sense that it has a really long wheelbase which means for me to descend I'm basically having one leg hang off the bike in order to get it to turn but once you figure that out it goes pretty well but I think next year uh if I if I can, I'll probably race it on like a gravel gravel bike, a lighter gravel bike. I think the I think the just the having a lighter bike would would benefit me because the nine twenty is a little bit of a tank. I'm gonna say
2: two percent. So that's that's my percentage on 2%. the bike. Yeah, it's not about right. the bike.
0: All right. Uh, so if we add the okay, let's take twelve percent and then we add it, we minus it off the thirty six percent. This is super wonky here, but I'm trying to come up with whether it's possible at the end of all this to say, as a coach, I would give it a crack and I think it's possible. Of course, we know some gains would be made, but would they hit that time limit? Everything all considered, everything we've discussed, for me, I don't think they would. But, But again, it's so hard because you don't know the situation of the person themselves you haven't seen how they respond to training how well their recovery is their lifestyle all these other things um training age all this stuff goes into it um but i'm i'm not convinced the funny thing is when we first had this discussion i think i you know i came to the same conclusion but i was way more off this brought me a lot closer to the possibilities if you give me two years Mm -hmm. with someone like this i'd say it's possible but one year, it might be stretching it just too much. Yeah, I think with much.
2: one year, so, if something goes wrong and you have to take steps back in terms of like let them recover from an illness or injury or anything along the way and they can't respond to particular training how you'd think, then you really start scrambling and scrambling is never good.
1: Yeah. And that actually came up in the 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 email that this guy sent and when he was saying what talking about the targets that he wanted. And basically my reply was, I'm not going to promise where you're going to get, but I will tell you that you're going to improve if you put the work in that. I thought that was a really fair response. So, um, and that's, I don't, I don't want to bullshit an athlete, you know, just so I can get them to hand me a paycheck it's not appropriate i think it's unethical so um, i think big
2: thing here is if you do if you're an athlete out there and a coach or trainer does come to you and promise improvements uh, a certain percentage like we've we've done a fair bit of research and coming from physiology backgrounds and we're still just just taking guesses at at some point here along the way to come up with these figures Mm -hmm. and would never promise that to an athlete. So, if you're getting promised any percentage gain over a period of time, then you got to be asking some questions there about how they've come to that conclusion.
1: Mm. Unless it's me promising 7% (laughs) after doing hot (laughs) hit. (laughs) Okay, it's not 7%, but... It, it might be. There's an average of seven percent. So yeah, we'll see. <laughs>
0: Anyways, well, that, that wraps uh, it we it up probably for us. I think yeah, so. If, yeah, let's um, wrap it up, Cyrus. You want to jump yeah, off?
2: Yeah, I've got to run and catch the train. To, yep. thanks for the chat, cool. guys. Enjoy. Cheers. It.
0: Thank you. All right, Cyrus. See ya. So I'm going to wrap it up here. Thank you, everybody who contributed. You can find out when we release episodes and when the weekly call is scheduled for by following our Twitter or Instagram accounts on twitter we're cycling club pod and instagram it's cycling performance club but uh, i think today was a really good discussion and i look forward to next week thanks